Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Anyone working on it at all, the editor was fired. All of the publicity team were fired. It was just kind of like released into a void where nobody knew anything about it. I don't think I even had an email address of anyone I could contact at the publisher anymore. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Lauren James is the twice Carnegie-nominated British author of many young adult novels, including Green Rising, The Reckless Afterlife of Harriet Stoker, and The Loneliest Girl in the Universe. She is an RLF Royal Fellow, freelance editor, and screenwriter. Lauren is the founder of the Climate Fiction Writers League and on the board of the Authors and Illustrators Sustainability Working Group through the Society of Authors. So please welcome Lauren to the show. Hello. Hello. I'm so excited to be here today. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. So we're going to talk about your writing journey and we're going to start by going back all the way to the beginning When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? So I'm one of those people who started really young. Um, So I was always a big reader. I used to go to the library and I would get as many books out as I could with my library card, my mum's, my dad's and my brother's. And I would read everything and then go back the next week for more. So uh, by the time I was like 14 or 15, I'd read literally everything in my local library and I wanted to read stuff that didn't exist. So I started writing my own. uh, And when I was 16, I started writing a story about a boy and a girl who kept being reborn and coming back to life over history and meeting each other. And one of the big drivers for me to start writing rather than just reading a lot was that my friends were doing NaNoWriMo, which I'm sure your listeners know all about, but if they don't, (laughs) national novel writing, whether you try and write a whole novel in one month. And the appeal for me was that there was the website where you can like upload the cover and put in a little description and it feels like a real book and you get to see your friends do the same and like update their word count every day so I took this like idea I'd had about this couple being brought back to life throughout history and I started trying to write it in NaNoWriMo and I picked it up a few years in a row when I was like 17 and 18 Uh, at the same time I was studying at university completely different to anything related to writing I did chemistry and physics Uh, so writing for me was like really a hobby like pure fun because when you do something like physics there's no essay writing even it's all like algebra so really like the only time I I opened a word document was to write my story it was brilliant <laughs> I got through every summer holiday or Christmas holiday I would just write and write and write and by the end of my third year so when I was about 19 I finished the first draft of this novel so it was literally the first thing I ever wrote and then I was just planning to like put it away until I graduated because I'd read that Stephen King said you should always write your drafts and then put them in a drawer <laughs> and then come back to them <laughs> so I was like okay I've got to do my degree anyway so I'll do that. About a month after that, there was a lot of uh, excitement on social media because Harper Voyager, the science fiction imprint, 
announced that they were going to do open submissions where anyone could submit a manuscript without an agent. And so I pulled my manuscript out because it was kind of like time travel-y, sci-fi-y um, and sent it off to them, like read it and did a few like minor edits and sent it off. It was... I didn't really know anything about publishing, so it was very long. It was like 120,000 words when it should have been 70,000 words. And it had like plot lines that didn't really go anywhere. But I thought that the characters were really strong and they had some nice romantic beats. So I thought that there would be something there that they might be interested in. That didn't go anywhere, but that process of <laughs> like tidying it up for Harper Voyager and looking over it kind of kickstarted me into going, I think this is good enough to do something with. <laughs> so this is... 2012 when there was a big YA boom happening where um there were like the big John Green books and Rainbow Royale books were getting really popular so agents were actively buying up lots of young adult fiction especially uh, in the UK where most of the big YA books were American so they wanted books that were written by UK authors for the UK markets. Can you tell us a little bit more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author and what you thought that that might look like for you? I don't really know that I ever believed it was going to happen. I think like, it was kind of just this thing I was doing on the side while I was at uni for something completely different. And I was always intending to graduate and go on to do a PhD. And <laughs> kind of like, like, I didn't know anyone who'd sold a book or anything like that. I couldn't even name any authors who were like young that were my age. Uh, so at the time I was like 21. So it wasn't really that I thought it was going to happen, but it was just kind of interesting to me to like explore this stuff and see what someone thought of my writing. And I thought that even if it didn't go anywhere, it would be really valuable to get some feedback on what they liked about my writing and what I should be focusing on. So um, the whole time I was like, I'm not going to get my hopes up. I'm not going to believe this is going to happen. It's just something that I'm going to do <laughs> out, like, out of interest. <laughs> and then when I did get a book deal, it was still kind of like, I thought it was going to be taken away for a really long time. Or oh. <laughs> so probably I didn't realise that I could actually be an author and that it was something that was achievable until like I got the proof copy. Because <laughs> before oh, that, gosh. I was constantly telling myself I shouldn't get my hopes up about anything. <laughs> um, and then when you have the book in your hands, it's hard to do that. <laughs> and you can kind of be like, mm -hmm. okay, I'll probably start telling people about this now <laughs> um so yeah definitely wasn't ever something that I thought um I'm gonna be an author and I'm gonna make this my career goal my goal was always to do science and then uh I like managed to stumble into writing alongside that mm -hmm. then how did you learn more about the publishing industry specifically like how to query how to find agents that kind of thing uh, a big thing for me was Twitter. When I got my agent, uh, I obviously went and looked up her Twitter. And from there, I was like following all the people she was following in and learning a lot about the UK publishing industry. So there is a really big, uh, amazing community uh, on Twitter. A part of that is through the UKYA chat, which used to be a great like hashtag chat that would happen every weekend and everyone would like tweet and, and answer these questions. And so you immediately knew who to follow because you could see who was engaged in this chat. And so uh, very early on at the very beginning, I think probably before I even got a book deal, I was like following a lot of these people and making friends with all the publicists and the book reviewers and stuff. Um, and kind of getting involved in that and just like listening in on their conversations and seeing what they were talking about and kind of 
having to go away and Google things when they mentioned them and I didn't know what they were talking about. And that's kind of something I've been doing ever since, like, so for like a decade now is just like learning from the conversations going on on Twitter and paying attention to what people think is important and trying to kind of take advice, whether it's given to me in person or just as a general thing going out into the world. Nice. A lot of people have mentioned Twitter, especially around that time. (laughs) I did know about the Writers and Artists Yearbook as well, which was a big um, guide to getting published in the UK with lots of essays Mm. by editors and agents. But I was a very poor student at the time, and I think it's about £25. And that was just out of my reach, especially because in my head, I was still still telling myself that like, this is just something I'm doing for fun. This isn't going to be a job. It's not going to (laughs) happen. So the idea of spending money on a book (laughs) was like, just Mm -hmm. very silly to me. So I probably would have learned a lot more and been less confused if I'd gone and bought that. Um, But yeah, I wasn't at a place where I could do that. (laughs) So then what happened? Can you break down for us your querying journey all the way up to signing your first book contract? Yes. So like I said, this was around the time there was a big boom happening in young adult fiction. So agents were actively looking for uh, manuscripts. So I ended up sending my manuscript that was very long (laughs) out to about six agents. And within a month or two, Claire Wilson at Rogers, Colridge and Wright uh, replied saying she'd like to read it. So I sent her the full manuscript and she replied and she did a revise and resubmit. So she basically said, Mm. I really like this. It's really funny, which was a big thing that I used to carry around. Like, she thinks I'm funny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you've got a really strong like romance uh, and the characters are really well built. Um, But it's got some. So because it's set in multiple different storylines, there's like three alternating threads and one of them was a dystopia which she said wasn't selling very well at the time so she wanted me to revise that so it wasn't a dystopia and just tighten the whole thing up and cut the word count down so I spent I had I was like I'm still at uni I've got to wait until my next summer holidays before I can do these edits or Easter holidays whatever it was so it took me six months to get to the edits and send a revised manuscript over to her and then she read it and offered to represent me And so then we sent out the manuscript to, I think, 10 UK editors in December 2013. And within two weeks, we had two offers, which was obviously very exciting. Um, Mm -hmm. I was very stressed out and I had no idea of how long submissions usually take. So I was like um, really nervous about it. And later I found out that like it can take many months (laughs) to get replies. So I (laughs) felt a bit like I was complaining for no reason about how stressed I found the whole thing um but it was very lovely having two uh two offers come in and that they were bidding against each other so I did phone calls with the two uh, editors and they had completely different ideas about how they wanted to take the manuscript so they one of them really wanted to um lean into the historical element and expand that storyline and keep that as um, complete and within the story as equal to like the the contemporary storyline. And then the other editor wanted to like cut that back and mainly have it be a contemporary story with a few like flashbacks from their previous lives. And I really like the historical stuff because the big draw for me was like, I was a huge fan of like Jane Austen and stuff. And I wanted to do all those Mm -hmm. kind of like Regency romance tropes in there. So um, it was very easy for me to see on the phone immediately which editor I'd work with better. And very luckily that uh, publisher offered more anyway. So (laughs) it wasn't a decision (laughs) I had to make about a creative point of view, but it matched up with the uh, alignment I had of how I felt I could work with that editor. 
And I've had that same editor ever since. So uh, coming on oh, a decade wow. now, uh, she's edited all my books. She's ba- We've got to the point where our relationship is really solid and quite casual. casual. So she said that she'll publish whatever I want to write. So it's not stressful at all. I just kind of pitch ideas and send in proposals and we just like work together. Uh, it's not a an- process I guess anxious about. It's just like a long-term relationship that with my publisher that is going to keep continuing on to the future. And I... Um, um, editing an anthology with her so I'm kind of like doing a lot of editing work with them as well they've hired me in as a freelance editor to work on some science projects so yeah I have a really strong relationship with basically the first person I ever spoke to in the publishing industry uh, which has been amazing I definitely think my experience would have been completely different if I'd been moving around editors <laughs> or if they'd been going to do yeah, it's funny because that feels like a very kind of like old school like that's the way they did it like in the early 1900s in American publishing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I've got a really lovely publisher. It's an independent publisher called Walker Books, and they just publish children's books. And uh, all of the editors there have been there for their whole career. They don't leave if they will get a job there. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it does lean into that kind of, like you say, old school publishing style (laughs) that goes back a long Mm -hmm. way. Cool. All right, it is time for the first cue of the podcast. Can you read your successful query letter for us? This is for the story I've been talking about, about the couple that keep being brought back to life. So when it got published, it was it ended up being called The Next Together. But in the query letter, I used the title The Red Earth Rolls, which obviously got changed pretty early on. I don't think it's a very good title. <laughs> now I know anything at all about publishing. <laughs> So, dear agent, The Red Earth Rolls is a completed 120,000 word young adult novel based on the idea of reincarnation. It encompasses genres such as dystopia, regency, romance, science fiction and thriller. An adventure spanning 300 years, this story has something to interest every reader. Catherine and Matthew have done this before. They keep being brought back to life and every time they do things, every time they do, things seem to be getting worse. In 1745, Catherine Horwood is spending a little too much time with her coachman, Matthew, when the Jacobites attack the city of Carlisle on the border of Scotland and England. Somehow the city has to defend itself against the feared Highlanders, and Catherine is determined to help in any way she can, regardless of the consequences. In 1853, Katie, an orphan girl, is running from the police in disguise when she accidentally gets stuck on board a steamer bound for the battlefield of the Crimean War. Luckily, a journalist is there to take her under his wing, although there is the slight problem in that he thinks she's a boy. Together, they try and help the war effort as much as possible, despite the hostility of the soldiers. In 2090, Kate meets a new researcher in her biology lab and discovers that together they bear a startling resemblance to her mysterious great aunt and uncle. Meanwhile, Kate keeps recalling memories that aren't hers. The siege of a castle, a kiss that never happened on a battlefield from a history book. In every lifetime, they are fighting for what is right, but however hard they try to help, will it ever be enough to stop them being brought back once more? Revealing the power of love regardless of circumstance, this book looks at the determination of two people in the face of growing turmoil it should appeal to students people who grew up speaking the language of the internet who enjoy science fiction but also have a soft spot for Jane Austen the Red Earth Rolls was written by a teenager for teenagers I'm currently in the third year of a chemistry and physics degree at the University of Nottingham I wrote this novel after becoming increasingly frustrated by the glamorized science often found in media. This prompted me to write a more accurate story about scientists and my love of history and genealogy brought forth another element. 
I would greatly appreciate any advice you could offer me about my manuscript. Thank you very much for your time and consideration. Awesome. Thank you. It would be awesome if every query letter was read in a British accent. I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) Did that make it a bit nicer to listen to such a long chunk of speaking? (laughs) So how has your experience been since signing your contract? You talked a a little bit about it before, uh, but especially were there any surprises along the way? Was there anything about the process that really surprised you? The main struggles I've had have been kind of how different territories work in terms of like when before you get published you don't really think about books as these things that exist like in the UK and in America and in Australia because online they're just books (laughs) and you'll hear someone (laughs) talking about a a book that is really popular on social media and you won't really think about where it's published or who buy but um, a lot of the stuff that is so important to publishers and also to authors is whether this is something that is going to sell to uh, foreign publishers Uh, and especially in the UK is this something that is going to be commercial in America and can we sell this to an American publisher and get kind of a simultaneous edit and release and so that's something that like as a UK author it had to really change your perspective on like the kind of books you write and it's something I think about a lot in terms of like I want to write books that represent the regional hometown I come from and like have the kind of British accents and stuff that we have here. But is that something that is going to be commercial internationally? And do you want to have like a long term career where you can publish books around the world? Or do you want to write books that represent the place where you were born and show the culture of the place you live? And obviously, like, particularly for the UK there's a lot of love in America of UK culture and like you said the accents um and so I have a very like minor example of that but that's something that especially since I got my book deal you see a lot of talk about kind of how can we make books more diverse and show people's different lives and experiences and that's come to be seen as a thing that is like embraced (laughs) and it's something that publishers look for whereas definitely it was something that was kind of discussed as this thing like can we Americanize this and cut out a lot of Mm. those things that make this book British so that it is more marketable to our audience and I don't think that's something you see as much now it feels like it's more like this is a book that sets somewhere else and it embraces all these differences so yeah that was a big Mm. surprise I guess as well in terms of like how much of writing is a commercial decision rather than a passion project decision. Um, So I've written 10 novels now and my process has changed so much from just writing what I want to read to kind of finding an idea that I love but also that I think is going to sell and that my editor and my agent and my my producer they all think is going to sell and when they have suggestions like taking them on board and even if they don't match it with my original vision knowing that like it's going to be more valuable in the long term to, to find a way to fit into all our goals um so that you can justify spending time on a story you love <laughs> so all those kind of things um where you have to kind of adapt something that you do as a hobby into something that is a job um were probably the big things for me mm. It is time for the quick round. I call it author DNA. It's just classifications that we like to put writers in sometimes. First question, are you a pantser or a plotter? Hugely a plotter. (laughs) (laughs) Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Underwriter. Do you like to write in the morning or at night more? I'm a massive night owl. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When starting with a new project, do you typically start with a character or plot or concept or something else first? The romance usually like how I can 
make two characters who play off each other. Mm. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Tea. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) When you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Music. Lots and lots of playlists Mm. for every project. (laughs) When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Probably I'd like to say get it right, but usually I immediately finish it and find out that I got it wrong anyway. (laughs) (laughs) What tools or software do you use to draft? Microsoft Word, Workflowy, Final Draft, Excel and Canva. Wow. All right. (laughs) Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Drafting, particularly like the development stage when you're trying to work out details like what's the inciting incident, what's the conflict, what's going to be like the lowest point, what are the stakes going to be, how can I find a romance where these two people fit together and how can you show that they make each other better people, what are the themes and then like having to actually put all those things down on the page is the harder part but kind of planning it all out and coming up with a long outline is my favourite. Mm. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Sequential order. And final quick round question, are you an extrovert or an introvert? It's so hard. Uh, Probably an introvert, but I think you have to be an extrovert for events. So I kind of like trick myself into feeling like I'm an extrovert when I do stuff like record podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) The show is called Queries, Qualms and Quirks, and we already talked about your query. Now we're going to talk about the second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and where they realize or how did you overcome them? So the big thing has always been money because famously writing doesn't pay very much. So when I got a book deal, I was about to graduate. I was like four months away from graduating. So I decided that I was going to take a gap year where I was going to see if I could write full time for a year living with my parents. And then if it didn't work out, I would go and get a real job. I have been on that gap year ever since. (laughs) It's kind of worked out well for me. Um, I've managed to write alongside the freelance work like editing and teaching. And in the UK, we also have the Arts Council, which is an amazing organisation funded by the National Lottery who support anyone doing creative practices. So if you have a book deal or have uh, interest in a project and you also can prove that you're doing events that reach certain demographics and you have data on who your events reach then you can apply for a grant to support and give you time to write they also did amazing coronavirus support as well during the pandemic which helped a lot with um money troubles uh we also we also have some amazing uh funds like the society of authors offers a lot of support for their writers as well and the royal literary fund is another one um so yeah the money's always been a big worry for me and it's um like nearly every year I'm like okay this is going to be the last year I can write full time I'm going to have to go and get a teaching job or something along the side and I would try to like think of like things that I could do that were connected to writing alongside that but I've managed to stay self-employed and freelance the whole time and I've written a book every year um and kept publishing a book each year so it's worked out I think the longer it goes on the easier it gets because you build a name and a reputation so I'm not doing as much hustling I used to spend so much time kind of sending out cold emails and trying to like get bookings to go and talk in schools or to do a lecture, a guest lecture at a university or kind of promoting my work as a freelance editor and stuff on on social media. And now those requests come to me and I get more than I have time for. So I can kind of pick and choose what I'm most interested in. And it's not that like I've changed what I'm offering. It's just that people know my name. Um, 
So it's got a lot easier to to feel like this is a career that I can do long term and I'm not going to have to go and get a real job. Obviously, having a degree and a backup (laughs) job uh, that I could go and do makes that a lot less scary. And I've had a lot of family support in that I could stay with and live with my parents until I was ready to like stand on my own and earn enough money, which did take a few years. Um, And but I'm really glad that I stuck through and did it because the creative side of writing is what I wanted out of science because people obviously think usually think it's really surprising that I went from doing physics to writing because they're so different but for me what I liked about science was the idea of like exploring and discovering and doing something different each day but then actually when you do work in a science lab it's just kind of you're doing the same experiment every day for four months and varying like minor things so it's not (laughs) too much exploring and discovering it's very repetitive Um, But the bit of my brain that lit up from like learning and curiosity and stuff, I get that now from like research and writing and imagining Mm. worlds in stories. So, uh, yeah, that was a big worry for me is um, was the money and whether I should be going back to science because that was what I was more interested in and kind of sticking with it um, is something I'm really happy I did. Mm. And now it's time for the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique? The big thing that I do is outlines. So I write huge, huge outlines, like uh, 10 pages, thousands of words long. And from all the the writers that I've ever taught or spoken to or edited, they're always horrified when I suggest that and they hate writing outlines, but it's my favourite part. Like I said, I love the development stage and I see an outline as like the the tool that you absolutely need to write well because I I think you need to be able to see the project as a whole so you know what you're doing so you can know how to start it until you know the end how do you know what you need to set up in the initial scenes it's like a blueprint or a map where you can move things around and you don't have to go into your bulky draft and edit things when you have an idea you can just go into the outline and run through a change all the way through and see if it fits in the plot threads Um, and it just like is for me it's how I discuss the idea with clarity and distill the, uh, what I want to do down to the core things I want to achieve and establish the tone of how I can set up running jokes or have characters that will do certain things in the plot and have, rather than having like characters who appear for one scene and then disappear, you can see like, how can I weave them in so they have time on the page to become three-dimensional, like all those kinds of things I do in the outline stage and everyone I ever edit hates it when I ask for a long outline like that Um, and usually they end up being really proud of what they've put into it and finding it really useful but yeah they don't like it along the way especially if they're like a pantser who just wants to write and they're gonna go. When you were in the lowest parts of your writing journey whatever that may have been what kept you going and why did you stick to it? So the big thing that I found really difficult is for my first book, my American publisher closed down twice. So when I first got a UK deal, they sold it to an American publisher. That American publisher very quickly closed down. So they had to resell it. Luckily, they did manage to resell it. And the first book and the second book in the duology were published. But a month before the second book was published, that imprint closed down. So it didn't have any... (laughs) anyone working on it at all the editor was fired all of the publicity team were fired it was just kind of like released into a void where nobody knew anything about it I don't think I even had an email address of anyone I could contact at the publisher anymore because anyone I'd ever spoken to was just fired um so that was really stressful (laughs) uh and that felt like really panicky in that 
it's so hard for UK authors to break into the American market at all. And I felt so lucky to have got an American deal any with anyone and then to feel like I kind of lost my chance was really difficult. What I always try to do is have lots of things that I'm working on at the same time. So that if something like that happens with one book, it's not the end of the world. It's not like my one baby and child that I need to... <laughs> that I've got all my hopes pinned on it's like one of many and I can just focus on the next thing and whatever happens with that is beyond my control because I think the biggest thing I've learned over 10 years is that what is successful does not necessarily match up with what you as a writer are most proud of because so much of success comes down to look so the books that I personally think I did the best writing craft work with and that I think I pushed myself the most on they don't necessarily match up with the sales figures because I've a the marketing was off or it didn't hit the mar- the the publishing industry release at the right time to for what was big, big at that moment you know or it didn't get picked up by this one instagrammer who managed to get it out to a certain audience like all of that stuff you can't control you just have to keep focusing on writing the next thing and if you as an author are lucky enough to be allowed to publish something else then that is the only thing that matters to me is knowing that i can keep going and keep feeling like i am being allowed to write things that feel fresh and new to me and stretch me and challenge me. I've had cases where publishers have been like, we really like this book that you did. Can you not write this thing you've submitted, but instead write something very similar (laughs) to that book that was really successful? And that is something I absolutely don't want to do. I want to always be kind of writing things that uh, I feel like I can learn from and they're developing new skills for me. Like, oh, I'd love to do a book with an unreliable narrator or something that has a reverse chronology or something where the main character has amnesia, like things where I can do something different with the form. Um, that's the joy in it for me that keeps me going when it's like this bit didn't work, but I learned something new that I can apply to the next thing and the next thing will be mm. better. Another big thing that was really hard was during the pandemic, I had three books come out, (laughs) which is an insane number to come out um, at a time when most of the UK bookshops are closed. So um, Mm -hmm. I do feel like some of the books that came out then lost their chance because I do a lot of events and go and visit schools and festivals and stuff. And there was obviously none of that. So it felt like it was really quiet release for those books. And they it just still feel a bit like they haven't come out yet because I haven't had a chance to talk about them. Um, and do like the tour with them um so that's been really tough but I I think that once you've got a backlist in place you're always going to have readers go if they like your stuff they'll go away and read your old titles so they're mm-hmm. never going to be lost as long as they're still in print because they're going to get out there at some point <laughs> yeah do you feel like you made any mistakes along the way that you would like to warn listeners about so maybe they don't make the same ones I wouldn't ever consider anything that I do that's connected to writing a mistake because even if the thing itself fails, um, I make connections with people through it and it leads to other opportunities that I wouldn't have considered. So I always try to do new things. Uh, Like I said, I don't like to get bored. I like to be constantly experimenting. So I've done stuff like start a podcast that didn't work. Um, I've done serialized novels online where I post chapter by chapter. I set up a writing group of climate authors Uh, I used to do a lot of book reviewing, like all those kind of things were just, I was, had things that I wanted to learn about. So I would experiment and if they didn't work, um, I feel like they led to a lot of opportunities further down the line. I, at the start, like I said, I was really worried about money. So I did a lot of teaching um, and that takes up a lot of time. 
especially if you're kind of preparing a whole module of lectures and then teaching them like the pay can never match up with how much time you have to invest in developing a, um, a lecture series like that um, and I could have easily written a whole of a novel in that time but it was something that I don't look back on as a mistake even if it felt like it was um taking up too much of my time when I was doing it because through that I made so many like local industry connections and I was able to talk in a way about my writing process and craft in uh, terms that helped condense what I was working on to myself it was a lot more instinctive before whereas once I'd taught it to other people I could, like kind of had terms to describe what I was doing that allowed me to like, focus on my weak areas and find ways to develop them so yeah all those kinds of things that are like business areas of like how can I explore how to publicize work or do some marketing work or do something connected with uh, editing um they don't often work out but they teach me things to take on to the next thing and skills a big thing that I wish I'd done actually <laughs> that I just thought of uh, I probably should still do is do a course right at the beginning in graphic design because I've never had any graphic design training and you have to make so many like little things like headers for your website or events like graphics or a bookmark design and stuff and I used to suffer through trying to do all those kind of things with no training um, and then I discovered Canva which obviously is a very easy free online within your browser graphic design um, thing with templates and even then like I struggled through it and hated every moment of the process of trying to teach myself how to use Canva which is very easy to use it's designed to be user-friendly and I still hated it so I probably should have taken some kind of photoshop or graphic design course back in 2012 and that would have been the most useful thing that would have cut out a lot of suffering time for me <laughs> mm. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? I think to always trust your own instincts and remember that it's your book. And at the end of the day, nobody else cares about it as much as you do. And that uh, ed editor's advice is often really valuable, but it's not valuable in terms of you should do the thing they suggest. It's valuable in terms of pointing out where the errors are and you can find your own ways to solve those errors as long as you do address them. And you shouldn't make changes that you're not happy with because you will always regret that and you won't regret pulling out of a deal or telling them that you have a problem with this and talking it through and finding a different solution in the long term because you will make something that you're proud of. And the most joyful part of this career is that I'm constantly making things that I want to make and I'm only doing things that I'm interested in and I don't have an employer telling me what to do. I'm just creating things that I want to exist in the world and um, if you ever compromise that then for me that reduces the whole point of doing this very difficult job <laughs> because you're you're not doing the one thing you wanted to do from the beginning so yeah that's probably the most important thing all right I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast this is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own so who are some of the people or even organizations who helped you along the way and how? So obviously the big biggest one, I'm sure everyone says this, but my agent, uh, Claire, like uh, she's been there since day one and she picked me out of the slush pile and she has answered every single panicky email I've ever sent and been really kind and taken the time to teach me. Um, my editor, who I've worked with since the beginning as well, like when I look back at some of the structural edit letters that she sent, 
they're so different to the one she's sending me now. Like she took the time to invest in me long term and help teach me why she was asking for these changes uh, in a way that's paid off dividends in our like relationship going forward. But that like um, she didn't have to do. She could have just told me what to do without taking that time to kind of invest in helping me develop my editing style. Also, the like I said, the UK blogging community where I basically learn everything from Twitter, uh, particularly from people like Lucy Powery, who set up the UKYA chat, uh, Jim, yeah, 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 uh, Charlie in a book, all of those kind of people who um, have been there since the very early days when uh, YA wasn't this big trendy genre that it is now they they were just there for the love of children's fiction and this kind of industry has boomed around them and they're so nice and supportive to debut authors and then a lot of local writing organizations like writing west midlands here in the uk who took me on as a tutor and let me teach some classes um the university of coventry in my local city where they like let me come in and teach um and hired me to do little writing things uh, with the city of culture and like all of those kinds of local organizations where looking back you're like why did they ever let me do that I had no like (laughs) evidence that I could do that well (laughs) they just wanted to help a local author and having giving me a reference like that was and led me to go on to other stuff Uh, it was really invaluable and yeah I feel really lucky that I got those opportunities early on so yeah some of those people (laughs) Nice. All right, Lauren, before you go, can you tell us about your latest release? Yes. So Green Rising was my latest novel. It's a climate change thriller. So I've been wanting to write about climate change for a long time based on my science background. Uh, But I wanted to find a way in that felt really like positive and uplifting rather than kind of a depressing dystopia. Um, And I ended up coming up with this idea where Teenagers have magic that allows them to grow plants from their hands. And these green fingers uh, use this plant magic to rewild the planet and kind of pull a heist on all of the organisations and companies who are uh, allowing climate change to continue for their own benefit, whether that is to sell oil or to get to Mars and establish a colony there. They kind of do this uh, heist and thriller on them. And it's very political. It's very funny, I hope. It's also got a bit of a romance. Uh, And if you're at all worried about climate change, hopefully you will leave this book feeling really inspired and excited and with an idea in mind of exactly what we need to do next to fix the planet, whether we have plant magic or not. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story with everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Lauren's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.